Coming up today, Matt Reynolds goes on a denture adventure and we explain how the war in Ukraine could spur another global chip shortage. You're listening to The Why Podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Tempton, and joining me this week are Morgan Meeker. Hello. Matt Reynolds. Hello. And Natasha Bernal. Hello. This was the week when Facebook parent company Meta and YouTube said they would block access to Russian state-backed media outlets RT and Sputnik across Europe in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Twitter also more clearly labelled and reduced visibility on posts from Russian state-controlled media. This was also the week when Apple halted all product sales and services in Russia, saying that it was deeply concerned about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and with those suffering as a result of the violence. And a German court ruled against a new law that forces social media companies to block or delete criminal content and also report serious offences to the police. So this was a victory for complainants Google and Facebook's Meta. And it was finally the week when the latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change concluded that many of the impacts of global warming are now irreversible. The report, which looked at the impacts of and potential responses to climate change, said that 40% of the world's population are highly vulnerable to climate change and the poorest would be hardest hit. Another week, another in-person podcast. Yay. So we were in person last week, but none of you were on it. Yeah, I, it's like the first time for us. So there we go. We'll, we'll, we'll celebrate again our happy reunion in the podcast covered. But what did we learn this week? Natasha. I learned many things. I've chosen one for you all today, which is, I don't know if you know this, but the sayings that we all know tend to be only half of a saying. So you know the expression, like, great minds think alike. There's a second part to it, which is, fools never differ. And if you hear the words, Rome wasn't built in a day, it actually ends with, but it burned in one. So I feel like that's an important omission from history. The second half of the saying is implied, though, right? No. So like, for example, the early bird gets the worm. Yes. Right. But the second mouse gets the cheese. So it completely changes the meaning. In that case, it does. Yeah. But on the Rome one, it doesn't, right? Like the, the the idea that it takes a long time to build a great empire and it can all disappear in a second. Yeah, but that, that, that disappearing in a second is the bit that we don't know. I don't understand why I was never taught, but it burned in one, for example. So what, are we, what are we meant to take from the second mouse getting the cheese? That the first, you don't want to be the first, you want to be the second. Sort of like being but, the... <laughs> but, then, but then if you're the early bird, you get yeah. the worm. Yes, but only if you're a bird. <laughs> if you're not a bird, be second. But I think that's what I take from that. I'm not sure. Is that correct? It's true, actually. The second halves of these phrases just kind of ruin them. It's like the mm. smart kid that's like, mm, fools never differ. And so your phrase <laughs> now means nothing. So it's just, this is more like, if you want to be smart and annoying, here's the second half of the phrase to just undercut anyone that tries to say something. That's true. I, I do feel like it is kind of strange that we've gone with the optimistic side of things but I do think it's sort of like a, a poem or something you sort of mm. learn the first first bit of a poem and then you just sort of don't learn the rest the second halves feel a bit like something that an elderly relative might chirp back at you when you go oh but you know great auntie 
elder. Um, the early bird catches the worms. You go, ah. Uh-huh. The second mouse, my boy, gets the cheese. All right, Matt Reynolds, what did you learn this week? I learned that polar bears aren't native to Iceland, but they do occasionally turn up there having swum the 300 kilometers between Greenland and Iceland, or sometimes they drift across on sea ice. And Icelanders think that since the 9th century, they've recorded about 600 visits from polar bears. What do they do once they get there? Are they okay? Is that an okay environment for them? Or do they inevitably need to get back to their homeland? They kind of hang out. They go to all the main tourist sites in Reykjavik. They're like, is that how much a pint of beer is? And they're, they're off to Greenland. No, it is actually a bit of a problem because sometimes they turn up and then they mess up crops and they, you know, they attack wildlife. So Iceland, actually, I think in 2008 or the early 2000s, uh, put together a penguin, oh, not penguin, a polar bear response force to try and decide what to do with these polar bears because there were some incidents where they were shot and obviously that's not good for ever- anyone. But because polar bears aren't native to Iceland, they don't have the same kind of protections that um, they might have in other countries. So actually it's a really a bit of a problem really for Iceland. Interesting. All right. So I want to open the show this week with an email from Anna, who's a longtime podcast fan and magazine subscriber. She wrote in last about last week's podcast, which she points out did not mention Russia's invasion of Ukraine. She says she was gobsmacked by the omission and d- rightly describes it as one of the biggest stories to have happened in many years. She writes, I don't expect political reporting from Wired, and I even assume that you might not have stories specifically about the war, but I hope something as big as this is not completely ignored. So first up, I want to apologise. What's happening in Ukraine right now is horrific, but things were changing incredibly quickly when we came to record the show last week and we didn't have a reporter on a specific story that we felt was ready to bring on the show. As such, we took the decision not to talk about events until we were ready to do so. The news coming out of Ukraine in recent days has been absolutely horrifying and this is a really, really fast-moving and harrowing story that is so big it's hard to think about anything else right now. We've now got reporters working on a number of stories and you can expect events in Ukraine to feature quite a bit on the show in the coming weeks. But we also want to give people a bit of a break from that news so we'll continue to mix things up you can read all of our reports about the war on wired.com and that brings us to our first story this week about a little known company called cryon which is based in the seaside city of odessa on ukraine's south coast natasha morgan over to you Thanks, James. So on Thursday morning of last week, explosions were reported in seven cities across Ukraine, marking the start of a full-scale Russian invasion, which is ongoing as we speak. One of the targets affected was Odessa, which is a seaside port city on the banks of the Black Sea. This is a major strategic place for global trade, and cutting it off has meant chaos for supply chains across the world. But what you might not know is that Ukraine has around 50% of the supply of neon gas, which is a crucial element needed to manufacture semiconductor chips and that one of the major companies that supplies it had to stop production completely in a move that could have dire consequences for the entire industry. Now Morgan you spoke to people on the ground can you tell us more? Yeah so when I when I first saw this stat that Ukraine is kind of this center for neon gas supplies I mean neon is a really niche kind of gas kind of buried deep within the semiconductor chip supply chain. Um, It seemed that nobody really knew about it. People were writing articles kind of last week about companies that no longer existed anymore. So I kind of went searching for kind of the company that was the the heart of Ukraine's neon industry. And so what I discovered was that this company called Cryoin is Ukraine's major uh, supplier of neon gas. So neon gas is used in the semiconductor industry to power the lasers that draw patterns on semiconductor chips. 
And so I eventually got in touch with Cryoin and um, its business development director. And she was in this kind of weird position where she was sleeping in her basement because she was really obviously under shelling in Odessa. And so she was worried about her own safety. She was worried about the safety of her employees. She said that the uh, facility in Odessa had been shut since Thursday. Everyone had been sent home so they could not only keep themselves safe, but try and source things like food and water, the things that you only have to worry about when you find yourself in the middle of a war. And so, and then at the same time as worrying about herself, about her employees, she was also trying to reassure the companies. Um, she works, she supplies Neon mostly to the US companies, she said, US semiconductor companies. She was also trying to reassure all the clients that Cryoin was good, it could keep operating, it could fulfill all the contracts it had. Um, and this is sort of happening, she's making these reassurances on against a backdrop where not only, where the White House is kind of telling its semiconductor industry to diversify, to move away from Ukraine because obviously of the turmoil there makes it really uncertain about whether this kind of bottleneck in the semiconductor industry will will be able to keep operating the way it has done. So Morgan, you were speaking to Larissa Bondarenko, as you said um, earlier, that it's, it's, it seems like a really serious situation. You know, she's hiding basically from explosions above. It looks like they're taking the safety of their staff really seriously. But did 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 she say whether Cryon will be able to start production up anytime soon? Yes. Yeah, so when I spoke to Larissa on Saturday, the first time we spoke, she said she was hoping to that the Odessa facility could restart production on Sunday. However, when we spoke again on Monday, she said that had not been possible. Uh, shelling had kind of intensified in Odessa and I think Odessa is kind of suffering because of its location not only is it a major trade hub for Ukraine it's positioned on the Black Sea so it's a big shipping hub um, but also it has some Ukrainian navy activity take place there which I think has made it kind of a target um, for Russia it was one of the first cities to report explosions on Thursday when this invasion started happening yeah so this is a really serious thing because I mean, even just a few days of stopping production is obviously going to damage the supply chain, but making it an even longer process will have huge impact. So let's let's talk about chips. So neon gas is the fifth most abundant element in the universe, but it's pretty rare on Earth. And if you've ever looked at a neon sign, you would have seen it. If you've ever used a bit of technology, the lasers, as you said before, Morgan, that helped to shape it, were powered by it. By neon gas too so why is it so important for the production of semiconductor chips and if we need it for so many things why isn't it being produced elsewhere 50 percent being produced in ukraine seems a lot yeah so i think what's interesting about the chip industry that everybody discovered in the pandemic when there were shortages of chips that ended up kind of shuttering factories all around the world is this chip the chip industry is basically a long string of bottlenecks because it's so complicated you have kind of one country or one company that does one part of the supply chain. So if something happens to that company or country, it's really vulnerable to either price spikes or shortages. I mean, another example is the Dutch company ASML, which is the only company in the whole world that makes them which makes the machines that make the most advanced type of chips. So that's kind of crazy. And the Ukraine crisis has basically shone a light on another bottleneck, which is that Ukraine produces half of the world's neon gas so that's also another huge vulnerability um and so i mean cryoin is the country's major producer and 
and so it it's just a real bottleneck so i think that's what we've seen last week is when the just before the invasion started the white house the japan japanese government were urging their industries to diversify and look for other places that they could source this gas from yeah so we've we've seen this happen before though right i mean this is is something that that you know as you mentioned it's a global global kind of byproduct right if you if you have a global supply chain where you rely on specific industries or specific locations to produce specific things that you need for a global production line if something falls down it's going to have a huge knock-on effect but we, we've seen this with neon gas before so when russia invaded crimea in 2014 the price of neon gas skyrocketed and Yet, if we fast forward to to last week, there doesn't seem to have been a concerted effort to stop the exact same thing happening again. Why is that? So, yeah, that's really interesting. So basically how you get neon gas is it's a byproduct of the steel industry. And Russia has a major steel, is a major hub for producing steel. So basically the Ukrainian companies that make neon gas, they basically get crude shipped into them from Russia and then they purify it. And that's how neon gas is made. Um, So what happened in 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea is there were obviously border disruptions which made it difficult for for the crude to get from Russia to Ukraine. But also, I mean, analysts told me that Russia was kind of a bit distracted by war, essentially. So it stopped focusing on producing so much steel. And so that meant there wasn't as much crude available. I mean, Larissa Bondarenko from Crywin actually had a kind of alternative explanation for why the prices spiked so much in 2014. She said this was actually due to kind of a feud going on between rival Ukrainian neon companies and how cryoin was actually formed breaking away from another company called iceblick this happened in 2014 and apparently iceblick because she says she claims that because iceblick knew its days were numbered it shot up its prices to kind of get as much money from the situation as it could um so i mean that's an interesting alternative theory but i think it's definitely obvious that if there is a war in a region it becomes much harder to do things that companies need to 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 make industries function and cryoin is really worried at the moment it's mostly worried about the borders and that is something that could be a repeat of 2014 so not only getting the crude that they need and she said that they have enough crude to last for one month but beyond that that that's going to be an issue but also it's going to be difficult to get the neon out of ukraine obviously the borders are clogged up with not only military equipment but also refugees and 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 this is this is going to be a, a big problem Yeah, I mean, Ukraine, as you mentioned before, is just one of the sort of choke points of the global market for semiconductor chips. Um, You you mentioned earlier that, you know, the United States was saying we have to increase our production. Is there anywhere else that can pick up the slack? So Russia, China and the US are also neon producers. So, I mean, when governments and industry bodies are trying to reinsure investors and kind of the rest of the industry that it's all fine don't worry don't panic because obviously panic is terrible for markets and all kind of industries um they're saying look there's plenty of places that we can we can go to for for neon supplies um but what's interesting is that the u.s is is really dependent on ukraine i mean analysts told me 80 to 90 percent of their neon supplies come from both Ukraine or Russia. So that's a a really big dependency. And um, so that will be difficult. And obviously the chip industry is kind of big, cumbersome. It's not easy to quickly shift suppliers. And that's why these 
these issues can have ripple effects that kind of go around the whole world yeah I mean it's interesting because I mean you've got to have perspective right I suppose it is is obviously more important for you know the war to end the conflict to end for people to get out safely if they need to get out um but but it's interesting how this could have a huge hit on basically the pockets of quite big corporates right if you if you think about the sort of knock-on effects of not having a really key part of a global industry um it's a problem right but we are in a kind of unique situation within the semiconductor industry where they've already been hit by supply problems right in the last year we saw how many companies had to reduce the production of their chips because and and their products because they didn't have enough supply so already we're in a in a bad situation i, I suppose what, what's going to happen next if, if the situation doesn't resolve itself if russia and ukraine um do not continue you know their production of neon gas what could happen next so I think what happens is even if, I mean, it looks like the war's not going to be a short one, but even if it was, it shows that the damage that will be done to Ukraine is obviously the most important thing. It's not business damage to businesses, but it will be a factor that, that people are already starting to say, hey, you don't want to source your neon and other materials from Ukraine. This is a, a difficult region. And so they're going to start looking for alternatives. And that's going to be really bad for Ukraine in the long run sort of beyond the war and that's going to be really difficult for the people who live there and I think so what's so interesting about Cryowin is yes this is a company that produces a very niche part of quite a complex industry but it kind of acts as a barometer as how Ukraine will be treated by kind of global industry and kind of yeah what's going to happen in the future as a whole. As I said that's just one of quite a few stories about Ukraine that we published on Wired over the last week. There's a lot of things to cover and we'll continue to cover the situation as best we can. We'll include a link to Morgan's story in the show notes and head to wire.com to read more. Now, as I said right at the top, we will be talking a lot about Ukraine on the show over the coming weeks and months, I'm sure. But we do want to keep mixing things up, which brings me on to our second story this week, which is a bit of a departure because we're going to talk about viral false teeth. Matt Reynolds, a couple of weeks ago, a man and his false teeth went viral. But, as you found out, all was not as it seemed. That's right. Now, to start this story, we need to go back 11 years ago and meet a guy called Paul Bishop, who was on a boozy holiday in Benidorm in Spain. Now, after one pint of cider too many, Paul vomited up into a recycling bin and alongside the contents of his stomach and all that cider he also vomited up his false teeth the top set of his false teeth they were gone didn't have them for the rest of the holiday but then 11 years later on february 9th 2022 paul got an unexpected package to his home in greater manchester it was those false teeth that he had lost all of those years ago sounds plausible 11-year gap, false teeth, reunited with man from thousands of miles away. And the teeth came with this letter, and the letter makes some truly wild claims. Exactly. So this letter is really, really important. It was sent by a guy called Jose Juan Sanchez Serrano, and it detailed the journey that Paul's teeth had been on since he left him, since they left him all those years ago. So first, what happened is the dentures were found by Spanish 
waste collectors and they sent them to the CNB, which is a, a large public research body in Spain that does you know, genetic research and things like that. Now, after years in storage, the letter said, these dentures were discovered by a junior technician who swapped them for DNA. And what the technician did with that DNA was look them up in a Euronationals database. And lo and behold, they found a match for a certain Senor Paul Bishop. And they cross-referenced these records with the British Council in Altea. And they found Paul Bishop's address in Greater Manchester. Popped them into the post. And here we go. It's worth saying quite how big this story went, right? This was picked up by the BBC, most of the national newspapers dozens of local news websites in the UK and it kind of went around the world this was one of those silly stories that caught everyone's imagination or curiosity I guess it was huge for a few days Paul Bishop was everywhere but anyone looking at that story with even like a mild degree of curiosity might have thought that it didn't make sense but no one really thought to properly question it just to I don't know get in touch with the laboratory in Spain, ask about DNA analysis after 11 years of teeth being, after teeth being vomited in a bin. But basically, the thing doesn't make sense. So, Matt Reynolds, you went to try and make sense of the madness. See, I would describe myself as someone with a mild degree of curiosity. So I did exactly what someone with that mild degree of curiosity would do. I went and tried to figure out what this letter was saying. And of course, the place I started was with Senor Serrano, the author of the letter. So I sent him an email and I asked him about this Euronationals database. I said, you know, what, what is this? I've never heard of this. And how, came, how come a junior technician had access to it. And four hours after I sent the email, I was actually in the queue at the cinema, I was getting some popcorn, Serrano got back to me and what he said surprised me because he said, I've never written such a letter and to my knowledge we have no access to such a database if it exists. And in fact, Senor Serrano hadn't worked at the CMB for, for years and years and he said, well, I have no idea why my name appeared at the bottom of this letter. My guess is as good as yours. And at that moment you choked on your popcorn and spent a night in A&E. No, that is absolutely not true. But so Serrano is a bit of a dead end, but he does confirm what was quite obvious, really, but this weird letter wasn't from him and is probably a fake. But that raises more questions. So next up, obviously, you had to go to the man himself, Paul Bishop, exactly. to hear his side of the story. Exactly. I had to talk to this guy at the centre of this story. And, and Paul gave me some details about how this story went viral. So this is what happened. He received the teeth on a Wednesday morning. And a couple of hours later, he emailed someone he knew at his local BBC news channel. And from then, it went totally viral. Like you said, James, it went on national radio, it went on national morning TV programmes, every newspaper in the UK, essentially. I asked Bishop some facts about, you know, how this DNA might have got there and, and how the teeth ended up on his doorstep. And he said he'd given a DNA sample to Greater Manchester Police in 2007 or 2008, which might explain why his DNA was in a European database. And he was pretty sure that the teeth were still his. You know, they were a top set. He recognised them and, you know, they looked like they were his, although they no longer fitted him. And he says that he was a regular visit, visit to ben, visitor to Benidorm, although he hadn't been there since before the pandemic. But of course... I had this new information. I said, well, I'd been to Senor Serrano, the guy that, you know, whose name was on this letter, and he says that he didn't send it. And, you know, so I asked Paul, well, who do you think this real author might be? Serrano didn't send the letter. Paul Bishop is kind of not really giving you anything to 
help allay your fears that all of this might be some sort of elaborate ruse. But where do you go next? How do you try and crack the case of the mystery false teeth? Well, I figured that I should go to the CNB. That's the organisation that this letter was meant to be from. It was on this letter-headed paper. It had the email address and the website. And so, you know, it looked like pretty, pretty official documentation. I spoke to Susanna De Lucas, who's the head of scientific culture at the CNB. And she said, you know, we've heard about this. A couple of journalists have asked us about this. But as far as we know, this just isn't a real letter from us. They said, we haven't sent it. That logo on the paper is actually out of date and we don't perform the kind of research and tests that are described in the letter. So basically, here's where we are at. Serrano didn't send it. The CMB said they didn't send it. It looks like this letter really isn't real. So fast forward a couple of days. You may be eating popcorn again. You choke on it again. You get a WhatsApp from Paul Bishop with some intriguing new details. Yeah, I mean, it, it was early in the morning you sent this WhatsApp. So I woke up, had my breakfast of, of popcorn, sweet you know, popcorn in the morning and then salted in the afternoon. And Paul said, I think this has been sent anonymous, anonymously for whatever reason by someone who works in the lab mentioned. And Paul had, you know, a few reasons why he thought there might be this kind of anonymous person that had sent these teeth. He said, well, look, there's the CMB heading on the paper. So someone has this official paper. There's Spanish words in the letter. You know, it says, Buenos dias. And there's some kind of little bits of Spanish. Uh, and he said, there's no postcode on the envelope. So maybe the person didn't know that the UK used postcodes. And the stamps you know, seem to suggest it was from Spain. So Bishop you know, send me this WhatsApp message and he says, look, even if it's not Senor Serrano, I think someone from the CMB or someone in Spain has found these teeth, done the DNA test, found me and sent them. Okay, so Bishop says that the person from the CNB that you spoke to went, no, this letter is absolutely not from us. The guy whose name is on the letter doesn't even work there and confirms it isn't from him. There's quite a bit going on here, but the letter is almost certainly faked and Paul Bishop is claiming ignorance. We're no closer to understanding the truth, but we're starting to chip away at the lies. Where do you go next? Well, you know, once I kind of established this letter probably was hoaxed or wasn't what it said it was, I needed to figure out, well, could you do this? Could anyone do this? You know, do this DNA analysis theoretically. So I asked a forensic DNA expert, a woman called Denise Syndicum Court, who's a professor of forensic genetics at King's College London. And she said, well, theoretically, you could do this, right? You know, she said, if you take the DNA off as soon as the teeth come out and you preserve it and stick it in a freezer, then probably 11 years later, you might be able to defrost that swab and run the analysis. But we're talking about pretty specific circumstances here. We're saying as soon as the DNA, uh, the dentures come out of someone's mouth, you swab them, you, you, know, you put it in a plastic bag, you, you keep it to a high forensic standard and you put it in a freezer and then you come back years and years later after you know, staying in this, you know, this kind of frozen state. It's not the same as finding some dentures in a tip, waiting years and years and years, a decade, and then doing that analysis later. So when I said that, you know, could it be done in this circumstance? Syndicum Court said well, you probably just wouldn't get good good enough DNA unless they'd been stored properly. And furthermore, an agency like the CMB would not be able to access this kind of database, even if Bishop's DNA was in it. The only reason anyone would be able to access this database was if they were with law enforcement or potentially you can identify someone through like 23andMe or something like that. But they'd have to have this sample, fake it, pretend they were Paul Bishop and were looking for a relative. So in other words, it's... 
theoretically possible, but it doesn't match with the events described in the letter. And it's very, very unlikely that you could ever use this DNA to trace someone's address. Okay, person, fake. Sorry, the, the person who sent the letter, fake. The people are real. Um, the letter, fake. The letterhead, faked. The claims about the DNA, probably faked. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to egg this up a bit. There's another wild twist. It turns out this isn't the first time that Paul Bishop has gone viral. And this is when Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II gets involved. She does. Now, Paul had mentioned when we had our first conversation that he had contacts in the media. And this is because he is the general manager of the UK's oldest working men's club, which is like a kind of locally run bar, essentially. And a couple of years ago, he had invited the Queen to visit this working men's club. Now, the Queen's official correspondence coordinator sent a letter back saying, lovely invite, really glad you're doing well, or, you know, nice to invite us. The Queen's not going to come to your working men's club in Greater Manchester. Now, that was all very polite, nice thing to do, whipped up a little bit of media attention for the working men's club. But by this point, I was thinking, well, was that invite from the Queen or was that response from the Queen real you know if this new letter was a hoax what about that one was this all a ruse to direct the world's gaze towards ridge hill working men's club you know is paul a serial faker the answer is no buckingham palace basically i spoke to them and they said no we've checked it out that letter's real so the letter from the queen's deputy correspondence coordinator was definitely legit bishop wasn't as far as i could tell a serial letter hoaxer Okay, so the Queen, an unexpected twist, but she wasn't much help, bless her. But there's one crucial element of the story that's missing. What do we know about the teeth? And I mean both the real teeth in Bishop's mouth and the false ones that he allegedly vomited into a bin 11 years ago and ended up on his doorstep a few weeks ago. Right, exactly. So this is really crucial because Bishop says, like, these were my teeth. I had them 11 years ago. And then in the interim, obviously, I've lost them. I've had multiple false dentures replaced since then. But I haven't lost any more teeth. I haven't gained any more teeth through implants. So, you know, they're still my teeth, essentially. And actually, luckily, there's a video of him putting these teeth in on talk radio as a kind of live stream, essentially. And I was looking at that video and I realized, well, those new dentures that he's holding, these ones that came in the post, they're actually a full set of top teeth. So that's 14 top teeth, you know, all your top teeth, except they don't include your wisdom teeth. And yet when Bishop removed his current dentures, it's just a partial plate, right? It's one of those ones where you have maybe six teeth and you can see the other teeth around which it fits. So I was thinking, well, something here is weird, right? Because you can't go from needing 14 fake teeth to needing six fake teeth. So, of course, I asked Bishop, I said, oh, you know, in the interim, have you got any implants? Have you had any dental work that, you know, means you need a different uh, set of dentures now? And he said, nope, never had any implants. I've had some dental work, but really my friend says, his friend who is a dental technician said that, you know, your mouth shrinks and it changes over time. I wasn't super satisfied with this answer. So I checked out with three different dentists and they basically said, well, Unless Bishop's had some pretty significant dental work, i.e. adding uh, six new teeth, eight new teeth to his mouth, then those dentures probably aren't his. They just, there's just too many teeth. And, and just to be clear, to state the obvious, humans can't grow teeth back, right? 
I did not pursue that line of inquiry. So there is this possibility that he is the only human to have grown a third set of teeth. So that is, you're right. No, humans typically do not grow extra teeth during adulthood. But he could be half, <laughs> sorry, he could be half man, half shark. Uh, well, well, we could go to the DNA analysis <laughs> and attract him to an ocean somewhere. Okay, so let's pause again. The letter is almost certainly fake. The teeth seemingly don't fit in Paul's mouth. He's probably not a shark. The DNA argument doesn't make any sense. There's a final, final piece of this ridiculous puzzle. The stamps. Tell me about the stamps. Yeah, so I I got some stamp collectors on board to help me with this. So the stamps on this envelope, they feature the face of Juan Carlos I, who was a Spanish king who abdicated in 2014. So these stamps, I, I found out, were first issued in 2002 and they were replaced with the stamps featuring the new king in 2015. So they, yeah, they basically stopped being circulated around 2015. So whoever sent this letter must have either held on to those stamps for quite a long time, you know, seven years have elapsed since the new stamps came out, or it was sent at a considerably earlier time than 2022. So that casts a little bit of doubt. It's not impossible, right, that you'd have a several books of stamps that, you know, went back a long time but it seems unlikely especially from a business perhaps also you should consider the value of these stamps which probably add up to 10 euros and 15 cents it's a little bit difficult to tell because paul didn't send me the greatest quality photos so i couldn't exactly work out the value of this missing stamp but but it's probably 10 euros and 15 cents and i did a little sleuthing into tariff cards from the spanish postal service service and this revealed that the last time it cost exactly 10 euros and 15 cents to send a letter from Spain to the UK was in 2018. So really, we've got this thing that the value of stamps on the letter definitely doesn't match to the amount it currently costs to send a letter of any weight from Spain to the UK. And it suggests that this letter may have been sent four years ago. It's been a wild ride, Matt Reynolds, but I'm not really sure where all of this leaves us so what are we to make of paul bishop and his denture adventure i think we know this for sure right the letter is a fake serrano didn't send the letter no one from the cmb did the dna analysis it describes is very unlikely to succeed and even if it did you couldn't really use that data to track down an address the letter probably wasn't sent in 2022. It's probably an old letter. And almost definitely, the teeth never belonged to Bishop. So basically, nothing in this story is true, uh, despite the fact that dozens and dozens of places reported it. None of the basic details really stand up to any scrutiny. And I don't want to say that some grand lesson here beyond dental hygiene is, is really important, but... This is a story about the nature of viral news, right? This story never made any sense, but that didn't stop it from becoming a sensation. It was picked up by dozens of publications. In simpler times, this was one of the biggest stories on the internet for a couple of days. But nobody really put any work in to check the details. This was a story that was too good to be true. And ultimately, seemingly, it turned out that it wasn't true. So what is the lesson here, if there is one? What are your final thoughts? Well, I, I think you put it quite well, James. It was a story that was too good to be true, right? It, it was so it was so neat. This guy, his teeth turned up. He had this boozy holiday, and you know, it's this kind of you know British caper. And when the story is too good to be true, 
and also it feels kind of low stakes. Like, what does it matter if Paul Bishop's teeth aren't real? Did I just waste two weeks of my life trying to find this out? It doesn't really make any difference at the end of the day. But I think that, you know, it taps into all these questions about how we think that it's plausible. We think DNA can be used in this way. It seems like we can be tracked down no matter where we are. But actually, with a little bit of interrogation, you realise, well, none of this is really true. The only thing that we can be sure of is that people love a good story and they really want it to be true and actually I put this to Paul Bishop and he said well I guess we'll never know who sent the teeth that's how he wanted to end it absolutely outrageous um so here's a proposal we could perhaps turn this into a six-part limited series narrative podcast where we second you for say six months to finally find the truth or send you to the lab in Spain we'll send you to the rubbish tip where these teeth might have ended up we'll, we'll find the truth right are you up for it I, I will take me to that bin and I'll, <laughs> I'll get my gloves on and I'm, I'm in there all right let's do it podcast at wired.co.uk if you've got any questions I guess maybe there aren't any questions about this one but get in touch anyway it's been a fun story for Matt to be working on and we're pleased with how close you got to the truth even if the truth ultimately evaded you so thanks for putting in the hard yards that's it for this week we'll be back again same time next week maybe in person who knows but i guess it doesn't make any difference because our voices sound the same but yeah it's nice to see you all in person and we'll be back again next week have a good one take care bye-bye bye bye